Welcome back to Just James Horror Reviews. I'm your host, Just James, and this is episode number six. Today I'll be doing a book review on Dreadstone Press's Split Scream, a novelette double feature. This book features two different authors, two separate stories. A novelette, these are both a little bit longer than a short story, a little bit shorter than a novel. You could probably read this whole thing in a day, but I took the time to read them separately so I could really soak in each story and get the most out of each one of those. I actually read this twice uh, to prepare for this. Pretty excited about doing this review. I really enjoyed the book. I was able to watch some YouTube videos on each author to see, you know, kind of their perspective and, and their thoughts on writing the book and the story and all that. So it was very cool to do that and then read the book following what they had said in those interviews. You can find these interviews on YouTube. You can just search their name in the YouTube bar. It's also uh, on their websites, but I'll go over that later. So the first story we're going to talk about is called Guts of Myth, and the author's name is Carson Winter. Guts of Myth, it starts out very... Well, actually, the whole story itself is, is very... Uh, it's, it's a noir-type story. It's meant to be that way, and it starts out with this no-nonsense English thug kind of guy and I believe it's set back in the 70s. The lead character's name is Byron. He's the one that we're going to follow around through this whole story and I'll, I'll say one thing too about reading all this and thinking about doing these reviews. Originally, I didn't want these to last very long so you could just kind of get a quick recap, quick fix on this horror stuff but there is a lot going on in both of these stories and to recap them in a way that's fair, I'm going to have to put in a little more time for each one. So the first story, we have our main character, Byron. He's a a, a, a thug that lives in London, but spent some time in the States. And so he has this kind of identity crisis thing that he goes into at the very beginning. And this is a very interesting thing that the author does. He's able to give a lot of background on each aspect of this story and give you just enough to where you're able to build this these people, their personalities, and these sceneries very quickly in your mind. Like I said, these stories are relatively short, but you're, the fact that he and uh, Scott Moses, for that matter, are able to do all this in such a short, condensed story really speaks to their ability as an author uh, to put out something that's just really enjoyable. So we meet Byron. He goes in and talks to his boss. His boss says, hey, I got a job for you some guys looking for just some common thug to do a job he says sure I'll do it whatever and he goes out Byron talks a lot about hurting people and beating people up and being a thug his whole life you learn very quick that he is not a good dude however throughout the story you find yourself being on his side with a lot of stuff even though he's a violent person doing violent things you kind of start to see him as like, hey, this is just a guy just doing his job. This is just, he's just doing what he loves, you know. And so even though he's doing bad things, but a lot of times with people, they don't feel bad if bad people are doing bad things to other bad people. So, you know, I don't know if he meant for that to be a part of it, for us to think that deep into it. And I really feel like, especially with this first story, The Guts of Myth, you can go as deep or as shallow as you want. You can get really deep into a lot of things that happen here. Uh, there's some pretty sweet dynamics as far as like human interaction and what's good and what's bad, that kind of stuff. Or you can just stay in the shallow and just enjoy it as a, uh, I thought it was very much like a, uh, 
like Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, if you combine that with Sin City and put those two together and then made them more violent, I think that's kind of what you get in into this story. So, uh, so anyway, he he gets up with this gangster guy. The his boss tells him to go meet this dude. So he goes down to this uh, shitty part of London, which I thought he did a great job of again setting that scene. There's broken bottles. You just picture this broken down industrialized place sort of if you think about like in the movie fight club you know where they had their little base at you kind of get that idea so he does that very well in a very just like in a paragraph or two boom you have this scene set in your head so he goes there he meets this guy this dude tells him this story about how he had gotten hooked up with this man a long time ago who was a bear who was an affluent guy and he goes to the house and the dude he's talking to is like, hey, you know, I was this very mild, uh, tepid, you know, uh, Christian man. I went to this house and this dude was just having these crazy sex parties, uh, sacrifices, all kinds of crazy shit was going on in this house. So him and his wife are like, OK, a little bit too much for us. We're going to leave. Well, the dude who runs the place. His, his name is Allosaurus, okay, which I think is hilarious. And Carson, if you watch his interview, actually talks about where he came up with that name and why. So I'll, I'll let you go to his YouTube uh, videos and watch that. It's pretty hilarious. But Allosaurus, they call him Al for short in the book because I think maybe he put the joke in there. And then once the joke's over, you, sh- you don't want that to take away from the story. However, I think it's hilarious. So I'm going to call him Allosaurus. <laughs> so he meets that guy. The guy tells him, you know, basically your typical uh, playboy Satan, I, it, it reminds me of, um, God, what is that guy's name? Is it LaVey, the Black Sunday Church of Satan guy that used to have all these orgies and stuff way back in the day, and uh, these mock black masses kind of thing. It, it reminds me of something similar to that. And so, meets up with this guy, him and his wife end up partaking, and before they know it, they're fully uh, involved in all these other things. They're doing the orgy stuff and, and participating in all these different rituals and things like that, so... I thought it was interesting. One of the parts in the story, the, the the doctor who's there talking to the thug, he uses the word, he said he introduced me to polyamory. And I thought, I thought that was kind of interesting because I think back then you just would have been called a swinger, even though, you know, not to get too deep into those definitions, but just that word choice, you've only heard it, I think, mainly since, I don't know, I guess the 2000s or whatever. But I would say back then it would just be more like a swinger party, not a polyamory party anyway that's nothing negative it's just funny word choices you know and things like that i thought are kind of they're very interesting however for your modern day reader i think that would be more easily understood than the word swinger so bravo to that i enjoyed that um byron you find out is named after lord byron who i had to look up i'll admit was an english romantic poet known as one of the best if not the best, Lord Byron. Yeah, I'd heard the name, but had no idea who it was. So that's who he's named after. So you have this guy. You know he comes from, even though he's a thug, at this point you're realizing, I doubt thug parents named their thug kid Lord, you know, after Lord Byron. So, you, so you, you're you starting to think like, okay, this guy has some kind of backstory. What led him up to this life of crime and violence, and why does he enjoy it so much? So again, we're starting to build these different layers in this story. So... He gives uh, he, he gives Byron a book that he said he found because he lost track of Allosaurus a long time ago for many years, and then all of a sudden this book was sent to him, and he believes it has 
rituals and things in it that can get him Allosaurus back. And he's like, well, where is Allosaurus? He's like, I don't know. I think he's in another dimension. Again, I know I'm not doing this the justice it deserves, but just bear with me. That's our story, okay? So that doctor sends Byron out to find two other thugs to help him because he says it's more than a one-person job. He's going to have to go out and and that's just part of the deal. If he wants to get paid, he promises him more money than he could ever imagine. And he has to meet up with these people and, and follow all these instructions to a T without question. And he has to commit. At no point will he be able to turn back or he won't get paid. Also, the ritual or whatever it is is not going to be able to be completed. So he's really trusting Byron to do this. And I think Byron takes that on. He starts to, and he, he even says this in the he even says this in the book about how at some point he starts to believe his own myth. So Byron is buying into his own his own hype, I guess, which is kind of that classic Greek folly of man kind of thing. You know, again, you can get as deep in this as you want, or you can just enjoy the story as it is. So he goes on, he meets up with these two, you find out it's a pimp and his hoe. However, now they just steal expensive paintings, but these two characters and the dynamic between these three is really cool because they meet up and it's just one bad person talking to another. It's all about money. They're doing this kind of pissing contest in the beginning to see who's more tough. And the pimp guy ends up trying to check Byron. Well, Byron lets him know really quick what he's all about. So they end up getting in this bar fight outside in the alleyway and Byron beats the absolute shit out of this guy almost kills him and the coolest part and uh, again you guys know I talk about the whole story on here so read it first if you want to just talk about it later but after he beats this dude up he straight up cuts a tooth out of this guy's mouth while he's laying there I just thought that was you know again this gritty uh, ultra violence but still with this noir flair I just thought that was a really cool part. I think it really set the stage of like who this guy is and what he's about. Because before he talked about it and he's, you know, he was talking real tough. But once that happened, there was no question. You know, you knew that this guy, if he said he was going to do something, he was absolutely going to do it. So really cool way to, to solidify, you know, those things early on for a story that's relatively short. So they end up following the directions. The three of them go... I believe it's Hong Kong. They go to Hong Kong is where they're supposed to go because they got to find this portal. The doctor said to find Allosaurus, we got to go through this portal, go into this other dimension, and and get this guy. So we're mixing these two, right? We got this, you know, old school kind of vibe going, and holy shit, now we're jumping through portals and stuff. I just really liked the ride of this story. So they go to Hong Kong. They meet some kind of wild, mad scientist-looking guy, and they describe him. And he <laughs> reminds me of uh, the guy from... Uh, Back to the Future, Doc, when how they describe him anyway. So they meet him. He says, hey, the portal's upstairs. Uh, they're still kind of nervous about everything. And through this whole time, even though they had this fight between the two of them, it, it kind of set a pecking order, I guess. But the two, the pimp and the and his, his, uh, his partner, I guess, um, they still keep throwing little jabs here and there at Byron. And so he still doesn't trust them, even though he kind of put them in their place. He still feels like, you know, his, his spidey senses are tingling. He knows something not, is not right. You know, uh, there's no, uh, 
you know, you can't trust a thief, right? So that's kind of where he's at. Even though he has to work with these people, he knows something's up. The mad scientist guy gives him a gun because they're scared. And the girl ends up getting it, which Byron doesn't like. They go to the portal and the guy's telling them, hey, when we get in here, you're going to have a, you know, a very short amount of time, very short window to get in here, get through this portal. And he is with uh, Allosaurus. He's a, fo- he's a follower of him. So you find out all, that Allosaurus has this network of people all over the world. As they're in this room, they realize that the, the walls are covered in all type of uh, you know, runes and markings and stuff like that. So we're, we're starting to leave this kind of black and white city street type atmosphere and slowly edging our way into what is going to be you know more uh, science fiction kind of you know HP Lovecraft kind of horror uh, setting which he, he did that in a way that was pretty seamless there was no like hard jerk where you're just like wait a minute why are we here now you know what's going on now so again props to him for for how how he was able to do that uh, so seamlessly so you get in there in the portal there's a man tied to a chair and he said here's your portal we're not going to have much time and the guy's like what the fuck is this that's a man in a chair not a portal so you find out that the portal is the man so how do they do this they split his ass open they cut him open from you know like his belly button to his neck and the man starts to open up and the description of how the portal is made is really good I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to read how it goes, but just it, it talks about like reconfiguring his bones and he's being stretched and ripped apart. And the guy's, you know, he's he's still screaming and struggling and all this. So, you know, you see this this portal is created inside this person and they have to go through it. Of course, even Byron and even the two two other thugs are they're freaking out. And the uh, the two, the, the, the pimp and his partner are trying to get Byron to back out at this point. And he's like, hey. Bottom line, he wants to get paid. Is he freaked out? Yeah, but he's not going to get paid. And he was told that when something happens like this, got to commit and can't wait. So he ends up pulling them in there with him. They fly through this portal and they wind up in this like black charred earth. Everything's ashen and and uh, it looks like something that's just been bombed all to hell. And... Uh, they all wake up. There's another little fight for the gun. And uh, let's see. I think I can't remember who ends up with the gun at this point. I'm going to say, yeah, Byron ends up with the gun because they end up encountering some type of life while they're out there. And it's this it's this weird creature that is is has has like chopped limbs. So I, in my mind, I imagine it's crawling kind of like a like a spider or something, but at the elbow and the knee, it's chopped off. And it talks about how its its skin's grown over its face and its mouth, but you can still see it moving something underneath, and this thing's just like some kind of weird, mutant, humanoid thing. And I I like that they don't give you too much information about this world, so you can just kind of make your own inferences about, like, what is going on here? Are they still in some type of earthly dimension or somewhere else? And their instructions were... Once they get to this world, they're supposed to be looking for Allosaurus. Who is Allosaurus? He's referred to as the the Golden King, I believe. Let me see. I got some notes here. Yeah, the the Golden King. So um, Byron sees this thing 
jerking around on the ground and it's like moaning under the skin that's covered its that's grown scarred tissue that's grown over its mouth and he ends up shooting the thing another funny thing in stories just different stuff while i'm reading and me just being just an average guy that just read likes to read and, and, and watch horror it says he get he takes like a 20 yard or a 20 foot shot to to shoot this thing in the head or whatever and uh 20 feet's a pretty good shot. So, I mean, to me, even though it might not seem like a lot, just knowing a little bit about that kind of stuff, I'm like, oh, man, so you know that Byron um, is no stranger to, you know, even though he fights with his fist and he uses a knife to cut that guy's tooth out, he is no stranger to firearms either, and he can use those just as, you know, proficiently for, you know, someone in his line of work anyway. So, anyway, he ends up killing this thing with the idea of putting it out of its misery. He's not necessarily killing it because he's scared of it, but he feels like it's in pain and he wants to end its suffering. So that's why he does that. They end up following a map that the doctor had given Byron at some point to to find Allosaurus. So Byron's just using his head a little bit and he says, I bet it's just the largest structure in the middle of the city. So that's what they, that's what they head towards. They go there and uh, end up going up to the very top of that thing and they find who do they find there the golden king himself allosaurus he's up there he's um he's very uh he talks exactly how you think somebody that, I, that i've been describing in this story would talk you know he's just very uh i, I don't i don't even know how to describe it. it's almost preacher-esque but you know he's he's going on about how great everything's going to be and he's going to bring this world into his world, their world, and he's going to let all these things that are out there, he wants that world to overtake Earth, I guess. So, um, Byron's about to ask him about, you know, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to find this portal? When the pimp grabs him from behind and holds him, and it's at this point that Byron instantly knows that he's been double-crossed by these two. So all those little, you know, gut feelings and all that stuff that he had in the beginning finally realizes that he should have trusted his instinct he knew in his heart he kind of knew that this was going to happen and they even you know even those two that that double cross and they even say like hey you know we tried we tried to warn you we we tried to get in front of this you know we didn't want to do this once i guess once they saw the portal and all this crazy stuff that was happening they were just they were wanting to back out but so he and i I would like to know uh just from the author just like I said, you can get as deeper, shallow into this story it, as you want. But as far as that character, is that like his 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 fatal flaw was like his pride in who he was, and he even says something about like I know now why my boss picked me for this job. Well, if you remember in the beginning of the story, the boss said he just needed some common thug, but yet in his mind he was picked for this because he's the guy that's willing to do anything, willing to go further than anyone else, willing to commit, and it, he did that to his own detriment. So he. That, that flaw of being willing to go all the way was in the end what ended up being his demise. So they grab him up. Allosaurus brings out this, you know, ritual dagger type thing. And, he, you know, he's about to get split open like the dude in the chair. Well, Byron's no punk, of course. So he ends up fighting the pimp. He gets loose. He makes a break for it, but not before the, the one of the thugs shoots him. The girl has a gun at this point. And uh, she ends up shooting him. And so I think he shoots him like in the arm or something like that. He ends up running. He goes all the way back down out of this huge tower. All three of them are chasing him. Allosaurus is like, you know, there's not much time. You know, we got to get him, whatever. 
and they end up breaking in or making it into the city and he goes into this building and at this point those weird scarred humanoid creature things there's a bunch of them and they're chasing him as well well it all ends up I think it was like on top of a a store or something like that in the city so they, they end up there and they're holding Byron down and he's starting to he's already kind of starting to fade I think just from the exhaustion and from the gunshot wound uh, he's not really able to fight him. He's just so exhausted. And they get the dagger out, and they're about to plunge it into him and slice him open. And it's this super, like, I remember reading it. I was just like, oh, shit. You know, like, this is this is a, an intense scene. It's all coming to a head. And then all of a sudden, Byron just stops, and he says, did I ever tell you why I left the States? <laughs> and it's funny because it snaps. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What the fuck's happening? And, but then when that comes up, and, it, you know, I also thought, no. You didn't tell me why you left the States. And now I kind of want to know, even though I'm at this huge, you know, apex of what's happening here. I do kind of want to know why you left the States. So uh, put this in at the very end. And uh, could the story have gone on without it? Yeah, sure. But I think it added to the story. It added to who Byron was. And again, like I said, I think you could dive as deep as you want into this. And if you want to, if you want to comment or or talk to me about this, you know, feel free to do so anywhere this is posted. But he he ends up sharing a story at the end as he's being sliced open. So Carson does this cool thing where it's jumping back and forth between the two. And doing that in writing, I think, is a lot more difficult than it would be in a movie. In a movie, you just cut scenes. You know, you would cut to this chaos on the roof of them being cut open, and then it would cut to, you know, this flashback memory that he has. So they did this really good if you ever saw the Punisher series that had that dude from The Walking Dead in it. The the scene where he's like in a chair getting beat up and he's flashing back to his wife and all this kind of stuff. It, it, it's kind of reminiscent of that as far as the scene, the, the scene goes. So anyway, Byron goes into this huge story about how when he was a gangster as a kid, he had, I, I guess, fallen in love with or maybe, I guess you could call it that. He fell in love with this other gangster who was a guy. So you find out that Byron's gay. Now, I will say that I I didn't clue in on this until like the very end. And then when I reread it the second time, there was all these different clues in the beginning. I mean, he even talks about like certain guys being cute. <laughs> he uses the word poofery, which I thought was funny. I haven't heard that word in a really long time, but I guess uh, calling someone a puff, you know, he's supposed to be in England. And uh, I guess that's a common phrase or whatever, but he talks about, you know, him having to be you know, act or be a certain way, you know, in that kind of line of work. But he does talk, he, he does throw out some hints out there that aren't necessarily hidden. I just didn't, you know, as I was reading, I was just so focused on this other stuff, I get, you know, that I just really didn't pick up. So I thought that was kind of cool. I don't know if he meant to just like kind of slide that one in. You didn't really know until the end or if it was something he wanted people to pick up on right away. You know, it didn't change the story at all other than just like it adds a little more layers to this Byron character. So he goes into the story about when he was a kid, him and this 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 uh, this other boy that he was in love with, they end up messing around, fooling around, and and uh, you know they're having these experiences with each other for the first time. Uh, you know this is this is them finding themselves and finding each other, and they're both young, and they end up uh, messing around, and it goes into detail about how they mess around. So you can read the book, or, or read this read the story, and it'll go more into it. But it ends in them going into a national forest to have sex and it's the first time they're ever going to do this they go into the national forest 
and they end up having sex with each other. And at some point after they finish, uh, some uh, a hunter, some guy just walks up on him with a rifle and he's got a flashlight. And let me pause right here because I thought in the story, and I, I, again, this is just thinking too much into it. It's just me being funny and my brain wandering as I read these stories. But the guy walks up with a flashlight and it says that his, his uh, Byron's uh, boyfriend, I don't, I don't know if they were in a relationship, it didn't say, but I'm just going to say it's his boyfriend because they're having sex and we're in a relationship together. But so his boyfriend confronts this guy with the flashlight and then the guy says what do we have here or something like that you can tell like in the story to me it seemed like this guy was just like some kind of redneck woodsy hunting trope that was given to this guy that walked up on him you know and he's obviously a a you know whatever what is that word a bigot i guess he's 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 some type of bigot he sees this he doesn't like it and he's going to make a, a to-do about it so the boyfriend gets up and confronts this guy but i think and maybe i'll reread it but i think the boyfriend confronts him before he says anything and i was like what if the dude was just like trying to find his way out and then all of a sudden this naked kid jumps out of the woods and was like hey man what's your problem so i'll have to reread it but um anyway that's just my own thought about it so scratch that go back to the story so he confronts this guy the guy says something to them and there's an altercation that takes place now again these two these two dudes were you know making love to each other so they're both naked and he goes into detail about how he said what does he said not seed they're covering each other's uh i don't remember what word he used but it wasn't seed but it was something like that it's it's uh it's graphic on purpose anyway so these two naked uh i guess teenagers at this point are getting in a fight with this guy who's hunting illegally in this national forest they get into a struggle long story short the rifle ends up going off killing his boyfriend byron freaks out and just savagely murders this dude and there's a telling point in this because even though like at this point you're feeling bad for this kid you know you're just like oh my gosh that's a horrible story now wonder he's like this but i thought it was interesting that there's a part where byron says that the feeling he had when he was fighting the hunter with his boyfriend that that was the best he had felt in his whole life and he wanted that feeling forever and so even though it's kind of this love story he doesn't say that he wanted to feel that love forever he wanted to feel that violence and that rage and that you know this what they were doing forever so I thought that was interesting because like I said he was definitely a no-nonsense character throughout the whole book and he absolutely enjoyed hurting people and and doing that doing that you know for for a lifestyle so I did think that was an interesting part as well he ends up killing the hunter and then he he goes he just he's on the run and that's when he moved back that's when he left the states he went to London and that's what he did so that's how he ended up back and then the story ends with his him feeling his chest and stomach and everything open up and creating a portal and it just ends with him saying take me back to that place take me back to that time in the woods when he was with his boyfriend, when the fight happened and then, and all that kind of stuff. So at the very end, you're just, you know, you're kind of like, oh, you know, bummer. And it, it gets me into this really weird dynamic of bad people doing bad things to bad people at the end. You know, they're all just thugs. They hurt people for money. They steal. Uh, the, the pimp and the hooker used to kill Johns, you know, and steal from them. So you got these morally bad people doing bad things to each other and you still feel sorry for him and I always think it's cool when someone can do that they can take like a normal way a a normal 
you know, everyday moral dilemma or ethics that people might carry with themselves and then flip that on its head and make you rethink it. So I felt felt like the story did good with that. Like I said, you can go shallow in and just be like, hey, cool kind of gangster story with a little uh, HP flip, uh, flair to it or dive in deeper into these characters and what's going on and challenge yourself to think that way. So really good story. I, I, uh, I really liked it. I'll talk more about uh, Carson Winters and what he's got going on since this and different things uh, here at the end. I want to get into the other story and give each each one a little bit of equal time. But I will say this, because I did want to I did want to cover two things with Carson before the end of this. The first one is when after he after Byron kills the hunter, it says that he runs from the scene covered in blood and semen. If uh, if you've ever read any Carson stuff, this is not a shocking line or anything. And if you're not you know, approved. This is not a shocking line. It's, you know, we're reading horror, man. This kind of stuff happens, right? But it's just the visual of him, I guess the word covered. <laughs> For whatever reason, man, I just thought of, you remember the ice bucket challenge? I just imagine that this guy is like, co- like covered. Like how much, how much semen is coming out of these, out of these dudes, man? He's covered in it. You know, anyway, he's covered in blood and semen. The blood I get because he just beat a man to death. That's going to, and, and his boyfriend was shot. So that's going to be a lot of blood. But Jesus, that's a lot of of semen. So anyway, there was that part. And then the second question I had about this story was the cover art for... Oh, that's another thing. The the cover art for Split Screen is very cool. It's, you know, just two contrasting colors. It's a really neat cover of the book. But each story on the inside has its own artwork. And both of those are really cool as well. You have to look in there to find out who the author is or who the artist is for those. But also enjoyed that as well. But for The Guts of Myth... It shows Allosaurus. You don't know what it is when you first look at it, but after reading the story, you realize that's Allosaurus and the uh, tower thing behind him. However, the tower has this weird veiny uh, look to it, this weird, like, you know, like I said, the people are stretched skin and all that. If you've ever seen the horror, or the movie uh, Society, where, like, all these people kind of melt together, it kind of looks like that. It's all skin. But the top has this big black circle in it. Now, could be a portal. I don't know. But... Kind of looks like a butthole. I'm just going to say it. Is it. Carson, is that a butthole? I just want to know. If it's not, I mean, it doesn't take away from anything. Awesome story. The artwork's cool as shit. But I can't help but look at that after reading the story and be like, is that what this is supposed to be? Because it is definitely about uh, this, you know, debauchery and this guy doing crazy stuff like sacrifices and having sex with animals and all kinds of stuff like that. So anyway, was wondering about that. And, uh... Oh, another deep part, too, if you wanted to get deep into this story, and the last thing I'll say about it, is them being opened up. I think even makes a reference of, you know, this, like, uh, a reference to being, like, a a, a vaginal, you know, look to this cut that's in this man as he splits open. As far as getting deep into it, I think, you know, there's all kinds of metaphors you could put into that, like, is that, like, reverse birth, you know? Is that, you know, when, when we come out of you know, an opening like that, what would, what it's, what's it like on the reverse? Can you go back through that? Is that a portal? That kind of stuff. So like I said, I think you could really uh, nerd out pretty hard over a couple of beers talking about this story and, and what it meant. So yeah, great. Let's move right into the next one. This is, uh, it's called The Mourner Across the Flames by Scott J. Moses. Both these guys have other works going on. Both of them have an internet presence, so it's easy to Google both of these names and look on YouTube or Twitter 
Um, look up Dreadstone Press. Look up uh, the uh, the other publications these guys have done, and you'll be able to find their stuff. So anyway, let's talk about Mourner Across the Flames by Scott J. Moses. The main character, his name is spelled B-H-A-R-A-T-H. Now, the reason I spell that for you is because I'm going to pronounce it Baharath, which I just think sounds cool. And as I read it, that's how I said it in my brain. Now, I, I don't know how Scott intended that name to sound, but that's how I say it, Baharath. And so uh, the story starts out with this Baharath guy. He's a sniper in a tower. And I really like how he set the stage for this because right, he has a great opener. That's, that's what I'll say. I mean, immediately after reading that opening, I was like, this is pretty cool. We got a guy in a tower, sniper rifle, there's a skeleton in there with him, and these dudes are, are coming up to his tower and he's, you know, shooting warning shots at him. So that's how our story starts out. He builds this world of, I'm going to say post-apocalyptic. You know, there's, um, everything's desolate. It talks about there being, you know, limited food source. Um, he, he goes into these things about uh, how, how everything's covered in salt. Everything's covered in salt. The, the salt is so thick it blows around like a blizzard. Um, just different things where he talks about it. It's, it's covered everything. And the salt, you don't know where that comes from. And, and I think, too, about this story, too, there's often, t- I think, uh, Scott leaves a lot of room for you, the reader, to figure out what's happening and what's going on. So as I read this story, first time I read through it, there was there was parts where I just... I, I almost got lost. I didn't really know what was happening. I was able to keep up with the storyline itself, but certain characters I got mixed up with and, and certain points in the story where I was like, wait a minute, what exactly is happening now? So the second time I read it, though, it made a lot more sense, and I, I think maybe that was even the point uh, that, the, that the author was getting at. He wants you to be just as, as confused and feeling confused and scared and, and, and not really knowing which way to turn as the main character as he goes through this 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 journey you know with you that, that you're about to read through so anyway this this guy built great um atmosphere uh the, the characters i thought they all were well developed in a way to where you knew what you know what their motivations were and all that so as you were reading it you were able to kind of get behind uh, you know what was going on with each one although i will say it was like i said it was just like a slow build-up which i thought was cool it wasn't all just black and white cookie cutter version of a story it, it was a thinking man's game as you went through the story and I and I enjoyed that I enjoyed that I was able that I I had the opportunity with this story to experience this stuff with the characters as they were going through it so I really enjoyed that part that part about Scott's writings and this is my first time ever reading anything from either one of these authors so uh, you know first time dipping my toes into their work I like both of it. Can't wait to get the things they got coming out on pre-order. We'll talk about that here at the end. So you got a sniper in a tower. These guys come up to talk to him. You find out that one of the guys is his ex-brother-in-law. And his ex-brother-in-law, um, everyone's labeled something kind of different. So uh, I'm going to have to take time to kind of explain what each one of these are. So if you've ever read like a, a fantasy novel or any of like the Dungeons & Dragons type novels, you know, there's a lot of different sceneries. There's a lot of different factions of, you know, people. There's a lot of different things that are labeled or called something that are words or labels that don't exist in in our 
you know, on earth or anything like that. So you have to figure out what these new definitions are and what these things are. So again, like I said, it's cool that you, that you are, that you get to build this world, you know, that Scott builds this world for you as you go along. It's not all just super clear right away. So, um, uh, Baharath calls these guys zealots and you figure out that that's like a faction of, of people and it has something to do with once the world was was ended, whether it was bombs, it says something about you can see craters where large things were dropped. And so you assume it's like this nuclear, uh, this, this nuclear, you know, event that happened that, that ended the world and turned everything to salt and mutated all these people and did all this weird stuff. So you have the zealots who are the ruling class, I'm going to say, and Camber, which is Baharath's ex-brother-in-law, is one of them. He comes up and he's trying to convince... Uh, Baharath to uh, you know it's, it's time to you know you, you don't have to live this life you can live a different life you just have to give yourself to the it, it's it's spelled pillar but I've been calling it Pilar I don't know why I'm saying all these names like Baharath and Pilar I don't know I think it just as I read the story that's the way it voiced to me in my head as I read it so I'm going to call it the, 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 the pillar the Pilar and Baharath so he's trying to tell him all this Camber's got this guy with him this old guy and he's got some bodies, and he's telling Baharath, like, hey, I need you to escort this old guy to bury these bodies and get rid of them. Now, another thing you find out is that there's this plague going on. So, right now, we got this nuclear holocaust thing that's turned the whole world to salt. And now we also, on top of that, have this weird uh, plague that's gone around and killed a bunch of people. And so, uh, he makes references to that as he sees the old man. He talks about you know, his different, uh, how he had to watch people die of the plague and what happened. So as he's in this tower, he's talking to a woman, uh, Sar Saraya, Sarai, S-A-R-A-I, Sarai. So he's talking to this woman, Sarai, which you find out is his wife, Camber's sister. It also doesn't take you long to find out that she is actually dead and that Baharath is talking to his dead wife. So she talks to him in his head. He's also having hallucinations. He's seeing things that aren't there. And... Like I said, that tower he's in has a skeleton in it. And you find out that this is some type of post that these zealots put people in to, to man this tower. However, with the other guy being there and he's a skeleton and he also has a rifle. That's, uh, so Baharath ends up with two rifles because he's got the dead guy's rifle as well. And uh, you find out that, you know, they just send him out there to die. That they're nothing to these people. They let this other guy starve to death, right? Or however he was killed. And so that's why he's up at that post is because the guy who was there is dead. So you find out that to the zealots, if you're not a zealot, you don't mean much to that class of people. So, so the, uh, let's see. So Baharath agrees to escort this guy. He doesn't let him in the tower because he doesn't trust anyone. Because again, he hates the zealots. He doesn't know if this guy's a zealot and they're just trying to assassinate him or what's going on. He's paranoid. He's hallucinating. He doesn't like them because he blames them for killing his wife and making him sick. They, he talks about having flashbacks of being in this chamber with this radiated rock. And it's all very, like I said, you're trying to soak all this in at the very beginning. And for me, on first read, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, quite, I didn't quite all get it. So um, I read it again, which wasn't a bad thing. I enjoyed reading it a second time and discovering the things that I didn't understand the first time. So... Uh, they start talking about brine. Now, since the world's covered in salt, I'm assuming the brine is just like a, like a salt brine. You know, like what you would do uh, with a 
with a chicken or something before you cook it, you know, a salt brine, which I'm sure is the, the play on the words and the whole use of that. But the brine you find out is some type of, I'm going to guess it's a crab. It's some kind of mutated creature that comes out of the, out of the waters and they use it for everything. They build uh, armor out of it. They eat from it. They do all the, you know, it's, it becomes the God of the zealots. It becomes the God of the world. They begin to worship these things called the brine and because it's, I guess, because it's giving them life, they use it to consecrate themselves with brine oil and all things are done for the brine. They worship the brine. And from what I understand, and you'll, we'll get into this later, that the brine are these creatures that they catch and kill and they use them, all the parts of them for, for various things. So anywho, he starts to escort this old man to where he thinks he's going to go, but they have to stop by a, a, uh, a shop that gives them food. That's where they get their food rations. And um, I guess kind of like a, like a store. That's where you would get armor and stuff like that too. But they call him the fetcher. Again, people have these labels. You know, you wouldn't just call it like a store clerk. Because that would be lame. Wouldn't fit the story. But he's called the fetcher. So they go. They find this fetcher. Very cool. Uh, d- described character. He's got on this big heavy armor. He's got this huge. What I imagine is a sword that's just as tall as he is. Just big long. A blade that he just sticks in the dirt and he uses to hack up these brine creatures to, to get the meat from them. So they show up. Oh, another fun fact. So when you become a fetcher, they cut your tongue out. The zealots do. Why? I don't know. For the brine. It's just what they do. They don't give a shit about people. They only care about zealots. They only care about the brine. So they cut the fetcher's tongue out. They stack him in this big, thick, huge armor to protect himself from when he's having to butcher up the brine. And, uh, He's just a really cool character. If you've ever played Bioshock, there's these there's these big armored monster people in those things called I think they're called Big Daddies or something like that. I, I very much had that in my mind when I saw it. Or maybe if you think about like the X Men character Juggernaut, just this big dude clad in like iron, and uh, he doesn't say anything because his, his tongue's cut out or whatever. And you get the sense that he is also very much committed to the the pillar um, and the Zealots because as Baharath comes up to him, he's trying to argue with him like, hey man, look what they're doing to us. You know, we're, we're, we're nothing to them. We're less than human. We're not, you know, we're, we're slaves. They don't care anything about us. And he tries to turn and as he does that, the fetcher is, you know, just itching to, to kill the dude, I guess, for his uh, blasphemous talk about the zealots. So he, he ends up getting uh, his rations from the fetcher. He was told by his brother-in-law in the beginning that if he didn't meet with the fetcher and he didn't get where he was supposed to be on time that they would come and kill him so they're very you find out that this ruling class is very strict on the rules you don't double cross them you don't talk shit about them you do exactly what they tell you to do and how they tell you to do it or you're you're killed so he goes over gets his stuff from the fetcher tries to and, and again i'm blowing past a lot of stuff so Scott, I'm so sorry. I'm trying to cover everything I can with keeping these as short as possible. Uh, I'm not doing your story the justice it deserves, but I'm going to try to get this quick review <laughs> review out, and I advise everyone to go and get the book and read it for yourself. It's definitely worth it. So he uh, he gets what he needs from that. He ends up giving him a rifle for some what sounds like some hooch that he makes from uh, these brine monsters. He gives him some of that, and him and the old man have a night where they're drinking that, and... 
uh, just talking to each other about their history and their past and what's going on. Well, he notices this old man is like puking some kind of weird black goo into this the thing that they're drinking alcohol out of. And so he ends up drinking it anyway. Uh, he gets a tummy ache and he wakes up and he notices that he's different. Something is different. Something's going on. He doesn't know what it is. He, he and At first he's like, is this the plague? Am I sick? With the sickness that's killing everyone, is it the radiation? He even starts to wonder if he's even there. Like, is he still hallucinating in the tower? And I think even as the reader at this point, I didn't know. I, you know, I'm still trying to figure out what's going on. I've got a good idea of these characters. I got a good idea of kind of uh, that they are are doing something. But as far as keeping it like where they're going, where why they're burying the bodies in a certain place, or why all this stuff is happening, I start to lose it a little bit there in the middle. And so anyway, he starts having all these hallucinations. The old man's starting to get stronger and a little bit better. Also, and forgot this part, there's two bodies on these mules that the old man is carrying with him. Now eventually, though, he thought those were the dead that he was supposed to be taking to bury. But he notices that this old man keeps going over to him, and you find out that he's feeding on him. And you slowly start to discover that this, this old man, or this what he thought was an old man, is, is some type of vampire. Now, I don't... It's a while in the story before they actually start using the term vampire. And, and the vampire creature even says, you know, we're not all just cloaks and fangs anymore. Cloaks and collars, I think he said, or capes and collars, which I thought was a cool line. He said, we're not all capes and collars anymore. He finally he's a vampire, and he said, we've been living here forever. And because of all this nuclear war and you guys worshiping giant crabs and everything else, we now have a chance to come back. We don't have to hide ourselves anymore. So you find out that this old man, this vampire is, he wants to repopulate the earth and he wants to use uh, Baharath to do it. Now, like I said, Baharath is still having these visions of his ex-wife. That's, that's all he wants. That's all he wants is his wife's love of his life. It's the thing that drives him for revenge. It's the only thing that keeps him alive in this world is the hope that he can kill those that took this woman from him. And so I'm all in, man. That's awesome revenge story. And I think anything like that, that love that that someone can have and that maddening drive that it has for him and how it plays out in this story, really cool. Really, really cool. So he ends up with this vampire. He gets changed by that black sludge that he puked into the thing. And uh, they end up going to this... I, I, I don't know what it is. It's, it's like a, a tower or a canyon or a, a crater or something like that. They get there and these people there in these hazmat suits trying to research it. Or, or they're going into it and they're armed. So they go in there and they end up taking these guys out. And I'm going to blow past because it's not necessarily the, the most important. The most important part is as they get in there, that's when you learn a little bit more about what's going on and what the motivations are behind this vampire. So... He ends up killing everyone, and he turns one of the people that they killed. He doesn't turn all of them. He just turns one. And he starts telling them, like, hey, you know, this is this is what I want to do. I want to turn those who are able to, who are worthy. He starts talking about people being worthy. So you slowly, and I didn't get this until I read it the second time, but you start to see where this vampire is really just wanting to create another elite class. He's talking about those that are worthy, those that aren't, which is the same type of talk that got his you know, wife killed with the zealots and all these other people who are you know, the ruling class. And so he starts to, and if you read uh, the, the description on, you know, in, the, in the book and, and some of the other reviews and stuff, they'll talk a lot about this, about how it's this struggle, like what's worse, what's worse, the, the, monster, the monsters of man or the monster that he's with now, that kind of thing. And, and really, I think to me anyway, 
And again, both these stories, you could really dive deeper into their meanings and and all that kind of stuff where you could just, you know, accept the stories for face value. But I think it really showed a, uh, you know, about the ruling class and, you know, s you know serving a different master that's just as uh, elitist as the other one. What's the point? You know, both of them are telling me how to live my life. And that's what he's dealing with. But now he's got the strength of this vampire. So another thing you learn while they're in here is there's all these barrels of like uh, toxic waste. And the new, the he, he turned a girl, one of the people that were in there researching or whatever, he turns one of them, he, he turns her into a vampire. And she starts rolling around in all this waste. And so you figure out that the vampire is, he was changed by the nuclear stuff. But also, now when he changes vampires, they are different from him. They still carry like a lot of the same kind of vampire tropes, like he can communicate with like telepathy and all this. And there when he touches them it's very euphoric for them he can control them hypnotize them all that kind of stuff but you also realize that this because their blood has been changed by this by the brine the brine has changed because of the water the water has changed because of the nuclear the salt and all this stuff and so it's it's mutated everything the world is all new even these vampires who have lived there since the beginning they're new and so he does this cool thing where he, he they he cuts his uh he cuts his wrist or something like that, and you find out that the blood is now toxic. So the blood they carry in them is toxic, but they're able to survive in this environment where these people had to wear hazmat suits just to just to be standing there. So, so yeah, you're get, so you're getting hit with all these different elements, and it is so much. I mean, you know what what Scott does is he feeds you with a fucking fire hose, and it's not a bad thing, but man, you have got to be ready. And for me, and, and maybe that's just the kind of reader I am. I really had to slow down look at what I was reading and pay attention to what was going on and not so much not I don't say that as a negative I think it's positive because you really get to dive into the story you really get to develop each element of it and understand it and carry it on to the next chapter or, or the next scene or whatever with you and I think it makes it that much more enjoyable so it's just his writing style uh, I'm going to assume it wasn't specific for this story but more so just how his style as a writer so did enjoy that um it cuts to a scene where the the the, the vampire sends out Baharath to go find some more people to change and he's like i want you to go to the pillar or the pillar or whatever it is to find the zealots and the highest of the high class right he wants him to go down there and of course Baharath wants to go there because he wants his revenge on all these people and now he's got all these superpowers and all this stuff so he says all right i'll go into these towns i'll go into these uh, places that still have life in them and and that's what he's going to do it cuts to a part to where they are some of these high zealots they have on this gold armor oh and i will say the armor too it's like made out of these crab shells or whatever and uh it reminds me of a i think there's a game there's like a game you can get on the switch it's not skyrim but it's like a version of skyrim i can't remember what it's called but it's like a weird like phone version almost and uh it has this weird crab armor it calls it something else i don't know what it is if you know let me know in the comments or whatever but uh, it very much reminded me that's the picture i had in my head when i i don't know if that's where he got the idea from but that's what i had in my head so he goes up he goes to the pillar he meets these or no wait sorry i'm skipping apart so the fetcher these high zealots they come to the fetcher because his time is up and they said you know did you do all the stuff you were supposed to do was what's his name here did they do all this stuff of course fetcher's got a 
tongue cut out, so he doesn't say anything. They end up taking the fetcher to the pillar to the high court to be judged for him not, uh, for him failing them by the other guy failing. So if one fails, they all fail. Like I said, if it's not done exactly how they say, everyone dies for it. So the fetcher shows up. He's got his big heavy armor on and all that kind of stuff. He's sitting in front of all of them, and without really any talking about it or whatever, the the high priest, the the shaman guys of the pillar just say you know what kill him just just kill the guy so executioner comes over there and who's the executioner in this scenario it's the it's Baharas brother or ex-brother-in-law Camber so Camber's over there he's about to kill the fetcher he's got this big ass axe and the fetcher lifts his head up and lets the axe slice the back of his neck enough to make it bleed blood comes out and it's this oozing toxic uh, radiated blood so what do we learn holy crap the fetcher is actually Baharath. Baharath went, killed the fetcher, fed his body to the brine that was in the cage, which I thought was a nice little touch, put on his armor, and set all this stuff up. So he goes in there, slaughters all these guys, but before he does, he's getting like these telepathic mess- messages from the vampire guy saying, hey, I need you to turn some of these dudes. And he's like, not going to happen. They're going to die. And it's all because of his ex-wife. And again, it goes back to the moral of the story like, you know, which master would he rather serve? They're both elitist, so he's going to choose to serve himself. And he ends up pretty much threatening the vampire like, hey, I got this axe. If you want some of it, don't, or, you know, it's going to find you. Don't worry about it. So, because he, I guess he sees he's got heat that this vampire is just as an elitist as the ruling class that was there before. So, yeah. And that's how it ends. So, uh, again, Scott, sorry. I know I'm not doing this justice, brother, but it's still a good story. I hope everyone. Uh, gives it a read and checks it out S- split screen awesome you can get it at Dreadstone Press you can also get it on Amazon anywhere you sell books I will say my favorite line that I wrote down in Scott's story where'd it go he's talking about his ex-wife again or I won't say ex-wife his, his, de- his dead wife that uh about how much he loves her and he, there's a scene where he remembers when they were alive and his wife said you know the world can't be all sugar and all salt the and that the it can't be all sugar and it can't be all salt and that's what makes life worth living or something like that like that's what makes it enjoyable is the good and the bad you know we've all heard that and he says to her look around love life's all salt without you here whoa dude that line such a good line and especially at that part in the story and everything I mean it just really hit me hard really enjoyed it so yeah anyway check the book out I do want to talk about what these guys got coming up. Again, you can catch, they all have interviews online. You can go to YouTube and type in their names. You can go to uh, PLM on YouTube. She's got some interviews with them where they talk specifically about this book. But Carson Winter, you can go right now to Tenebris Press and pre-order. There's, they got this sweet pre-order package where you can get the book, uh, his new book that, he, that just came out called uh, Soft Targets. And you get the book, you get an ebook, bookmark, mug, uh, you get a t-shirt and some stickers. And yeah, so go in there, pre-order that. I think March 1st is when you can pre-order just the book, which I'm definitely going to do because I, I want to see what it's about. The story sounds cool. To me, it sounds like a, uh, a really, uh, it's like American Psycho meets Groundhog Day. So that, that's what I thought after reading the blurb about it. But go on there, check it out, read the blurb yourself. Get that pre-order in. Check out some more Carson Winter stuff. You can also go to CarsonWinter.com and see all the other things that he's been published in and helped 
edit and all that other stuff. Scott J. Moses, you can also go to scottjmoses.com, check out his work. He has all of his, uh, not only works, but, you know, interviews and videos and stuff like that available on his website. They're very easy to navigate on his website. Uh, he also has a YouTube channel. That's just his name, Scott J. Moses, with a really funny intro video. <laughs> I really, I, I watched the intro video. I thought it was cool. He's very, I don't know if he was trying to be funny. I don't, I don't, I don't know him personally, but his personality is just very uh, dry and kind of comical and, and what he was talking about. Anyway, it's a, it's a good video. Go watch his uh, intro video on his YouTube. You can also go to Amazon and get some of his works. He also has a pre-order that's available right now. As this is being recorded, it's called Our Own Unique Affliction. And this, after reading the blurbs about it, I'm, I hate to cheapen it and just say, oh, it's a vampire story, but it's a vampire story. But it's so much more than that. So please go on there, read the reviews. It sounds like it's going to be awesome. I'm going to pre-order his book as well. Hopefully do a review on it way later on down the road, unless... Scott gets on here and comments on it. It was like, please don't review any more of my books. But I, I, I hope I hope you guys enjoyed this review. I enjoyed your books. I'm definitely going to pre-order those and and, uh, and give those things a read. I can't wait to see. I will say about these two authors, if you look online at their presence, they have, they are busy. These guys, you know, are writers, writers. They're writing all the time. They're involved in a lot of stuff. They're involved in a lot of editing. Um, Carson Winter is a co-editor. I wanted to give a shout out to the cosmic horror monthly which is it's a free download for part of it or you can pay for a, a small fee for a subscription and get the full the the full online magazine it, they also have an option for a print version the stories in there are awesome you get introduced to a lot of cool new authors i've really enjoyed it i've got the free version right now i might step up uh one day when i actually make money and get the the full version but you know you're able to get exposed to a lot of different authors one of those being Scott J. Moses is in February's issue, so check that out. Um, you can tell these guys are are, are working hard, and uh, I love the book. So, yeah, this is, this is a little long. I wanted to give both guys equal amount of time, so hopefully you enjoyed it. This is just James Horror Reviews. Take care.